Uh, we're going to be spending the next several weeks uh, through the end of this year in Peter's epistle, his letter, 1 Peter. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful book for us to be studying right now uh, in this time in our lives. And uh, it's going to carry us through uh, the first weekend in January. And we're really just going to go through 1 Peter together because it has incredible wisdom for Christians living in a society like ours. Uh, so with that in mind, uh, Christian, we're just going to read the first two verses together as we stand. 1 Peter chapter 1. Listen as I read it out loud to you. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Be seated, and if you would, please keep that Bible open in your lap as we pray together. Father, we ask that you would give us the mind of Jesus Christ, that even now you would be giving us your grace and your peace. And Father, that you would be sanctifying us and consecrating us by the work of your Holy Spirit among us. Father, teach us what it means that we are elect exiles and sojourners in this life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, we're going through a series right now, First uh, Peter, like I said, it's going to carry us through that first week in January, about 10 weeks, and we're just going to go section by section through First Peter. And so for many of you, you've probably read First Peter. A lot of phrases in this uh, book are very, very famous. You have them instilled in your mind. Uh, next week, we're going to be looking at what it means that we have a living hope. Uh, but, but today, we're going to devote time and energy to those first two opening sentences, which for many of us, they may seem like throwaway sentences, right? It's the introduction of a letter. How interesting can it be that there's this opening sentence where we learn who the author is and to whom he's writing, right? Well, uh, what I want to suggest to you, though, is actually none of these words are, are, are just throwaway words when it comes to God's Word. They're all precious. They're all the inerrant Word of God. And we can trust our lives and our very souls with what they have to say for us. And in fact, what I want to suggest to you this morning is that it's actually possible, if you listen to the words in 1 Peter verses 1 and 2, that actually grace and peace can fall fresh on you this morning. So that's my question for you. You know, do you think it's possible for you today to experience God's grace afresh? Do you? Do you think it's possible for you today, <laughs> two weeks before an election, right, to experience peace? Is it possible for you to experience God's peace? You know, in Hebrew, they used to call it shalom. Here in Greek, it's Irene, you know, where we get the girl's name, Irene. Is it possible for you to experience Irene? You know, come on, Irene, we need some peace right now. Some people got that. Thank you. All the millennials are like, what, what song is that? But seriously, is it possible for you today, before you leave this morning, to experience a renewal of grace and peace? Or are the situations in life just too distracting for peace? That'll come later, but right now, whoosh, I am focused in on a lot of stress and anxiety. Don't talk to me about grace and peace right now. I've got too much on my mind. I've got too many things stressing me out. Uh, well, if you're struggling to think that grace and peace can actually be multiplied to you right now, today, uh, friends, you have to have a higher view of what God's Word can do. 
And you have, to hire, you have to have a higher view of what it means to be called to be a sojourner, a resident alien, a temporary resident in this life. Because whatever we're facing this week and what our country is facing, all the anxiety that we all have, uh, it really doesn't compare to what Peter's audience were going through. And even if we are suffering in this life, that's exactly why Peter wrote this letter is to Christians who are experiencing being slandered and insulted and maligned and criticized. How are they supposed to live in a world that's hostile to them? Well, that's why Peter has written this letter. So uh, it's possible and likely, but it's only really possible to experience God's grace and his peace afresh this morning uh, there's really only one way to do it. And I guess this is my, my thesis, right? You can only really experience grace and peace this morning if you know who you are. Only if you know who you are. And that's all about this passage right here. That's all what this passage is about, right? Peter knows who he is, and he wants his audience to know who they are, right? So you can have grace and peace if you let me just talk to you for a little while about who you are. And of course, I'm assuming, right, that you are a Christian when I say that, right? And if you're not a Christian, I would invite you to consider becoming a Christian because that was who you were always meant to be. And what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, if you're a Christian this morning, you, at some level, at some point in your life, you have confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the only King forever, that He is the Holy One, the Christ, the Messiah, the one who has come into this world to die for our sins, to offer us forgiveness. And His kingdom is forever. And it's already here, it's beginning to work in our hearts and minds so that we are citizens of God's kingdom by faith, but his kingdom will come fully when he returns in the flesh to make all things new. Isaiah, Revelation, they call this the new heavens and the new earth. You just prayed that that day would come when you prayed the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. When you pray your kingdom come, you're praying for the return of the king who will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more because he will, he will swallow up death forever, as Isaiah says. So if you believe that, that Jesus is the king who's coming again and you're led by the spirit of God and you are a child of God, Romans 8 tells us that you and I, we can cry, Abba, Father, and we can know that we are the children of God. And then Paul goes on in Romans 8 when he's talking about who Christians are. You may remember that he says, that, and remember that you are not just children of God, you're what? Anyone know? You are heirs. You are co-heirs with Christ. You are going to inherit the kingdom of God. You are going to live forever with him. But then you know what Paul says in Romans 8? I had to memorize all of Romans 8 for seminary. It was wonderful. It was the best thing I ever did in seminary. They made me memorize Romans 8. But you know where, you know where Paul goes next? He says, all of this is true. This is who you are, Christian. And then he says, provided that you do what? Anybody know? All of this is true. You are co-heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him. Provided that we suffer with him. So for Paul in Romans 8 and all throughout 1 Peter, who we are in Christ is tied up in suffering. That's part of our call. right? We love this idea that I can call God Abba Father. I'm going to embrace that. <laughs> yeah, give me more of that. But suffer, suffer for Christ, what is that? Well, friends, that's the strategy. Now, that's one of the ways that you and I have grace and peace, even in days like today, is that we embrace Peter's call and Jesus' call to suffer with him. 
So let's go back to 1 Peter. All that to say, uh, what I'm suggesting to you is that Peter is offering to us grace and peace. And he says all throughout his letter that that comes primarily through accepting the sufferings that you and I are called to accept, just as Jesus suffered. So his people are to follow him. He's left for us an example, right? And so what exactly is going on? Well, you know, Peter, you know, knows exactly who he is, and then he's going to carry that over into who God's people are. So let's look at verse 1 real fast. Uh, it's right there, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Let's see how Peter understands himself, and then how does that carry over, right? So who, who is Peter, right? If you're new to the Bible, you may know something about, you know, St. Peter, right, or, or Peter. You know he's one of the 12, right? Well, uh, for many of us, you'll remember that uh, his real name is what? What's Peter's real name? It's Simon or Simeon. Uh, you know, Second Peter, he calls himself Simeon. It's Simon, Simeon. It would have been the same name. But Jesus, when he meets Peter, uh, he gives him a new nickname. Anybody remember what his nickname is? Yeah, he calls him Rocky, right? In, in Aramaic, which was a dialect, he calls him Cephas, which in Greek, I know this is getting confusing, it's, you could call it Petros or Peter, right? But all that to say, his name is Simeon or Simon, but Jesus calls him Rocky, right? Rock. Petros, right? And of course, that's a, a beautiful demonstration of how somebody becomes a new person when they meet Jesus, right? But the particular thing you need to know about Peter is that he was chosen by Jesus Christ to be one of the 12 apostles, one of those people in the inner circle, one of the pillars of the church. You know, Ephesians 2 says Christ builds the church, Jesus is the cornerstone, and the apostles and the prophets are the foundation, right? Think about the foundation of your home, right? There's the siding and there's the roof, but then there's the foundation. Well, Jesus was the cornerstone of the church, and the apostles are part of that foundation. They set the thing in place. So Peter has this incredible role to play in the propagation of the gospel, right, in telling people about Jesus. But what's fascinating about Peter and what you have to understand, if you're going to understand the story of Peter, is why does Jesus choose Peter? Remember, Jesus comes up to the fishermen, and he says, you know, follow me, and I will make you what? Fishers of men, right? But if you, if you know the book of Luke, you may remember, how does Peter respond when this rabbi chooses him by name and says, you are now mine, I'm going to make you fishers of men? How does Peter respond. Peter says in Luke 5.8, he says, <laughs> when he sees Jesus, you know, do this miracle with fish, and Jesus says, come on, you're mine now. Uh, Peter says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You see, I think part of why Jesus chose Peter was because Peter had humility about him. Peter knew when he came face to face with a real holy man, Jesus, he was, I'm a sinful man. I'm a fisherman. You know, haven't you heard the things I've said when I'm gutting the fish? I'm not a righteous person. I don't deserve to be chosen by you. I'm a sinful man. <laughs> Choose somebody better than me. You see, and it's that exact kind of humble self-awareness, right? That humility of the spirit that Peter has that allows, I think, Peter to rise to sort of be the de facto leader of the apostles, right? You know, he, he sort of becomes certainly the most outspoken 
of the apostles. You know, he, he, he says all kind of, he says, you know, uh, the quiet parts out loud, as somebody once said, right? All the parts that we're all thinking, Peter's the one who says it out loud, right? So uh, Jesus is talking about how we have to give up houses and mothers and sisters and families and lands for the sake of the gospel. And, and Peter says, well, Jesus, we've left everything. What do we get, right? What's in it for us? What do we get, right? It's what a pointed question. And then, of course, you know, uh, Peter is also the one, right, who wants to, you know, make up this, like, you know, sort of like shrine when he sees the, the, the transfiguration. And Jesus is like, we're not going to do that, Peter, right? And, of course, Peter, of course, also is the one who also gets to find first that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's what happens in Matthew 16. Peter's the first one to go, I know who you are. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of the living God. But then just a few verses later, Jesus starts to talk about how he's going to give his life as a ransom. He's going to die and be risen in three days. And what does Peter say? Peter's like, don't do that, Jesus. That sounds terrible. That sounds like a bad idea. Mm -mm, That is not part of my plan for your life. And what does Jesus say to Peter then? He just, you know, Jesus has just said, you are the rock upon which I will build my church. And then what does Peter say? Peter says, don't go to the cross. It's a terrible idea. I don't like that. And what does Jesus respond to Peter then? He says, get behind me, Satan. So Peter is very brash. He's a fisherman. He had calloused hands. You know, he he said the quiet parts out loud, right? He says, well, we're all thinking. He's the de facto leader. And of course, uh, the, the most formative thing in Peter's life we just studied a few weeks ago. Remember our series in John? It ends, of course, with uh, the famous story of Peter denying Jesus three times. Remember, Peter said, I, whoa, I don't know about these other knuckleheads. I'll never betray you, right? Remember when Jesus, uh, Peter says that to Jesus? I'll never betray you. I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, will you lay down your life for me? <laughs> I think it's going to be the other way around, Peter. And of course, Peter denies him three times. But then amazingly, because Peter serves the God of all grace, as he will call him in 1 Peter 5, Jesus calls them aside on that, you know, seashore, and they walk along the sand, and and Jesus brings him back in. He says, do you love me? And Peter says, of course I do. You know I love you. So Peter understood that he had made big mistakes in his life. When he met Jesus, he says, hey, find somebody more holy than me. Depart from me. I'm a sinful man. And as he follows Jesus, he's this beautiful mixture of, like, audacity and boldness of faith, but then also human frailty. And even when he is supposed to stand up for Jesus, he fails in his human weakness. But because he serves a God of grace, Jesus forgives him and brings him back and makes known to him that he is still an apostle. Even though he denied Christ, Jesus knows that he loves him. You see, that the most formative thing that happened in Peter's life was not that he was this great leader with all this personal charisma. The greatest thing that ever happened to Peter was Peter understood grace. That I don't deserve any of this. That I don't deserve to be called an apostle. I don't even deserve to be called a disciple. I was, I was a sinner when Jesus met me, and I struggled with sin throughout it. But I know this, that his precious blood was shed for me, and I bear it no more. He was beaten so that I would never be beaten. He was cast out so that I would never be cast out. You see, Peter was this beautiful mixture of a man's man, a fisherman with calloused hands, but also his heart had been made new by grace. 
You know, I went fishing uh, a few days ago because God loves fishermen especially. Amen. Amen. And I went fishing with a couple of pastors, actually, from the Rogue Valley. It was wonderful. And, uh, you know, we all, we all sat around and we talked, and we mostly fished. But one night we got together and talked about hardships that we had been going through. And so every pastor talked about something difficult in their life. And, you know, uh, one, of the, one of the pastors, uh, I won't name him, but you, you may know him. He used to be a commercial fisherman. And he, he was a commercial fisherman in the Pacific for years and years. And so, you know, he's kind of a gruff man. He's more manly than me. You know, he probably has three times the beard hair that I do, you know. Uh, he, he's way more manly than me. I don't have any doubt, right? I like to think I have scholar's hands, not, not calloused hands. That's what, that's what I tell people. I type a lot. I read a lot of books, you know. And flip through a book really fast. Well, anyway, so we got this manly, manly man, right? Very manly next to me. And we're all like sort of talking about hardship. And I'm like, mm, mm, that stuff sounds hard. And then somebody shares a story about something they're going through that's very hard. And what does the fisherman start doing? He starts crying. And I look at him like, wait a second. I would not have bet money that you were going to be the first one to cry. And he just let them flow. They were going down his cheeks. You know, I wouldn't do that. And I thought, man, I need to nickname this dude Rocky because I'm pretty sure this is what it would be like to be around Peter. Very manly, clearly the leader. He's the alpha male. And yet, and yet there's this tenderness to him because grace has changed his life and he knows the God of all grace. I think that's why Jesus chose Peter. It's because his life was changed by the grace of God. Have you had that same kind of change? Has your heart been made new? Have you been born again? That's what it means to enter the kingdom. It means to have a heart that's made new by grace. That knows that even when Jesus calls you, you say, I'm not worthy. (laughs) Depart from me. Who am I? But you know that you're called not because of something great in you, but because there's something great in God which is that he loves to forgive, and he's merciful, and he's gracious, and he's the best dad or father any of us have ever imagined. You see, Peter's identity was shaped by this. Peter knew who he was. He knew who he was. He was a forgiven sinner. He was a redeemed saint. He was a man changed from the inside out by Jesus Christ. And not only was that who Peter was, right, you know, uh, he also understood himself to be an apostle. See right there in verse 1, he says, uh, Peter, an apostle. And of course, what does apostle mean? Well, an apostle was somebody who spoke on behalf of somebody with complete authority, right? When they spoke, it was as if the person who sent them was speaking, right? And when you read the New Testament, you realize that everybody who follows Jesus, uh, you could call them a disciple, somebody who follows the teachings, right? I'm a disciple of Jesus. But within the early church, there was a particular group of men called the apostles who had a unique calling on their life to exercise unique spiritual authority, Right? And they pass down to us directly the message of Jesus. And when they speak, they speak as someone who has complete authority to speak on behalf of Jesus. In fact, the New Testament is primarily written up by whom? The apostles. Right? Matthew, the tax collector, was one of the 12 apostles. And when he speaks, it is Jesus speaking through him. When Peter, the apostle, speaks, it is Jesus speaking through him. When Paul, the apostle, writes his epistles, he is speaking as one on behalf of Jesus himself. He's an apostle. 
He holds an office that, uh, that Christians today and any Christians after them could not hold. And when you read the church fathers, it's all very clear that there is a unique calling on a certain group of men after Jesus came who were to give us the message of Jesus Christ, right? They were the foundation, right? Anyone here ever build a house? Do you keep building the foundation? No, you build a foundation and once it's set, then you add on to it. That's what Ephesians says, is that the household of God has Christ as the cornerstone, and then the foundation is the apostles, right? They have a unique call. So what separated an apostle from all the other disciples? What made them unique? Well, Jesus chose them for one, right? He chose the 12. But the other thing, when you know, Judas falls away, when they find Matthias, this is in Acts, which if you're reading the co-op, you would have read this story a few weeks ago. In Acts, what sets apart Matthias is they look for a couple of things. They want to know, has he been following Jesus the whole time since the baptism of John? And has he been with Jesus? Does he know what he's talking about? Has he been around us for a long time? Have we vetted him? And secondly, and most importantly, an apostle was an eyewitness to the resurrection. They saw Jesus back from the dead. They were an eyewitness to the resurrection. That's what they look for. They say, was Matthias with us when Jesus ascended into heaven? Right? So the apostles hold a unique position, right? Uh, you know, um, anyway, you, you, know, you know when people get your name wrong, you know, and you're like, sometimes you want to correct them, and then sometimes you're like, no, it's not that big of a deal, you know? Sometimes people call me Justin Dernigan. I don't know why. My name, that is not my name. I don't feel compelled to correct people, right? Often when they get my name wrong, it's no big deal, right? You know, and if somebody calls me a preacher, I'm like, okay, whatever. I guess I preach. Or you can call me a pastor. But sometimes people will call me a priest. And I go, I am not your priest. I am not your priest. A pri you know why? A priest makes sacrifices. I don't make a sacrifice. Jesus already made these sacrifices. There are no sacrifices left. I don't make a sacrifice on your behalf. I don't make you more holy to, to God the Father. Jesus does. So don't call me your priest, right? Don't call any man an apostle. That's wrong. There are shepherds, there are teachers, there are leaders that we have that, we, that Hebrew says we should submit to, but the apostles were part of the foundation of the church. We are to hear them with apostolic authority, right? It's a different category. I'm not an apostle. You've never met one unless you've got something crazy life story or vision I haven't heard of. <laughs> Peter is an apostle. He's not giving life advice. He has unique spiritual authority. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's what he says, right? And what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? Maybe no one's ever explained this to you, uh, but that's okay if not. Sometimes things get mixed. Is Christ Jesus' last name? Is he Jesus H. Christ? You know, is H his middle initial? Has anyone ever heard that? It's not true. That's not a thing. Uh, that's a misunderstanding of uh, Latin, I think. Uh, but Jesus... Christ does not mean Christ is his last name. Christ is the Greek word for the anointed one, the chosen one. In Hebrew, which is what the Old Testament is written in, you would have called him the Messiah, the chosen one, the king who is going to reign forever, the king that is going to inherit all things, right? And all the Old Testament is looking forward to when is the real king going to step up and redeem this broken world and bring the kingdom of God. Well, Jesus, the Messiah, has come. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the chosen one, the king who will reign forever. That's what we mean when we say Jesus Christ. You can also call him Jesus the Messiah. Uh, either one of those translations is fine. They both mean the same thing, Jesus the Messiah. 
right? All right, so uh, that's the first sentence, right? So who is, who is Peter? Well, I've explained a little bit of who Peter is, how he saw himself. To whom is Peter writing, right? So who is Peter writing to? Well, Peter knew who he was, and he wants us to know who we are. So he is writing right there in verse 1. He says, to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So, uh, to summarize sort of what that phrase means, uh, he is writing to Christians who are suffering for standing up for Jesus. Uh, They are living in a society that primarily persecuted Christians, not primarily through physical violence, but through verbal abuse, okay? Physical violence is going to happen to Christians soon after the writing of 1 Peter, but it's not happening yet. What's happening when Peter is writing is primarily verbal abuse, maligning, criticizing. Uh, Yeah, some people may have occasionally been beaten, just like Paul had been occasionally beaten, but primarily the the pushback against Christians when Peter's writing is they are being maligned and criticized and despised by the world around them. In uh, 1 Peter 3.16, Peter tells them that they are going to be slandered, in 4.4, he says, you are going to be maligned, which means criticized. And in 4.14, he says, you are going to be insulted, right? It's not, it's not only verbal abuse and sort of social rejection. There is going to be some people who are beaten, as he talks about slaves being beaten. But primarily, Christians are experiencing social rejection, right? Anyone here just love social rejection? Anyone? Anyone love social rejection? None of us do, Right? That's primarily the group of people he's talking to. And, of course, that sort of verbal, uh, you know, social rejection in a few, few months maybe from writing this is going to spill over into physical violence. And as many of you know, uh, Peter is going to die soon after this letter. Uh, you know, church history tells us Peter was martyred by Emperor Nero in A.D. 64. Now, that's recorded not just by Christian historians, uh, but by other Roman historians. Uh, Tacitus uh, was a Roman historian, and he talks about the persecution of Christians in A.D. 64. And he talks about how Nero wanted to clear out the city. He wanted to build a new stadium for all of their games. And so he uh, allegedly set fire to the city so he could rebuild it. And he needed a group of people to place the blame because he didn't want the political pushback. And so he picked Christians right? And what made Christians so worthy of, uh, you know, criticism and, you know, being maligned? You know, what's, what's fascinating is if you read the annals of Tacitus, you know, the history according to Tacitus, who, who was not a Christian, you know what he cites? He goes on, he says, you know, um, you know, an immense multitude of Christians were convicted, not so much for the crime of setting fire to the city, but for their hatred of humanity, Can you imagine a culture where Christians are thought to just hate people? That's their number one charge against Christians. You're weird, but mostly you know what we don't like about you? You hate us. You hate us. And so what did they do? They covered Christians with the skins of beasts. They were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired, Nero offering his gardens for such. See, Christians in Peter's day were being maligned and criticized and insulted. And according to Tacitus, the number one charge people could levy against them, they just, you just, you're just hateful. 
You just hate us. You hate mankind. Aren't you glad that's not our life today? (laughs) I'm just kidding. It's totally the world that you and I are living in. What's the number one charge against Christians? You just hate people. We don't hate anybody. Jesus teaches us to do what with our enemies? To love them, to pray for them. We don't hate our enemies because we know that we don't deserve God's grace. So how could I judge you in your sin when Jesus died for me while I was still a sinner? We don't hate anybody. But know, Christian, that part of our calling as a Christian is to accept the suffering and the maligning of the world around us. Peter's going to say, I'm not telling you to suffer because you're being a sinner or you're doing bad things. He says, suffer as a Christian for doing good. You're not going to get any moral credit for suffering for doing something wrong. But if you suffer for the name of Jesus, this is a blessed thing. That's what Peter's saying. And as we'll see over the next few weeks. So how are we supposed to live, right? That's who, that's who Peter is talking to. Christians who live in a world very similar to ours. You know, how are we supposed to live in this world? Well, I could give you all kind of like sociologically significant advice or something, or I could try to study this and give you good advice. But, you know, I think what we have to stake our claim on, Christian, is very simply this core idea. And that is God's word is sufficient. It's sufficient. It is enough. It is enough. If you want to know how to live this life for the glory of Jesus Christ, no matter what the social issue is, right? No matter what, whatever we're being maligned about, is God's word sufficient to tell you how to live in this world? Or do you need man's wisdom or some human advisor to read a new book on how to engage culture? Or is it possible that God's word is sufficient? <laughs> it's sufficient for this. Is it possible that God wrote us a letter about what it means to suffer in a world that maligns Christians? And is the strategy that it gives us the strategy we should employ? Think about that for the next few weeks. Is this word sufficient or do I need something else? I would suggest to you, of course, that 1 Peter is everything that we need to know how to live this life in faith and life for God's glory. That doesn't mean we're going to like it. You know, we may not like what Peter says as the strategy, but this is the strategy. This is the way we stay Christian in a world that opposes Jesus. We to his word. All right? Peter knew who he was. Peter knew who he was. He wants us to know who we are. So who are we? Well, right there in verse 1, he calls us three things. He calls us elect. He calls us exiles. And he says, we are part of the dispersion or the scattering. The diaspora is another word for it, right? Those people who are scattered throughout the world. So what does it mean that you and I are the elect? Well, another translation of that word is totally legitimate, is chosen, right? The elect is, is a word that is used in the Old Testament and the New Testament to refer to God's people. And it implies by the very nature of the word that God chose According to his foreknowledge, those who were to be his people. God has chosen you. And of course, that's the first thing Peter wants his people to know. No matter what they're facing, no matter all the pushback, no matter all the persecution, all the maligning, all all the stuff that they have to experience because of Christ, he wants them to know at their core that they are chosen by God. They are his precious people, they are his elect. 
that God chose them before the foundation of the world, that they would be conformed into the image of his Son. You know, Christian, this is not something that's supposed to make us look down on other people. It's meant to make you realize the grace of God, that God chose you, Christian, not because of anything great about you, but because he's that loving and gracious. So what, is, what does it mean for us to embrace that we are the elect? Well, I'll give you sort of two quick things about what it means. Number one, when we realize that we are chosen by God, the only way you know if you're really getting that is, number one, if it humbles you. That's how you know if you're getting it, because it should be humbling to you. When Jesus chose Peter, it humbled Peter. He fell to his knees, and he was like, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve grace, right? That's the number one way. I am chosen not because of all of my good moral deeds or because I'm a good person or I was going to have the faith anyway. God chose me despite myself so that I would make much of his glory. So number one, we're chosen, it humbles us. It humbles you and me forever, right? That famous saying, there go I, but for the grace of God, right? When we see other sinners. Number two, it shows us that everything about our life is meant to bring God glory, my salvation is not because I figured it out. I read my Bible enough and I figured it out and God chose me because I stick out among all these, you know, knuckleheads around me, right? No, that's not what it means to be chosen. What it means is that all of the praise and the glory, even of my salvation, is something wholly wrought and earned by God himself. When I think about my salvation, I just think, praise God. Praise God that he chose me. Praise God that he brought me to life. <laughs> I was like Lazarus. I was dead in the tomb, and then Jesus called me by name. It's going to humble me, and it's going to make me praise him all the more. Right, Christian, do you know that's who you are? He goes on, and he, he not only says that we're elect, he also says that we are sojourners or exiles. There's a couple of different ways you could translate that word exiles, but it just means somebody who is a resident alien, somebody who's living sort of long-term somewhere, but it's not really their home. You know, a, a sojourner is somebody who resides somewhere temporarily, you know, but it's not really their homeland. Right? That's what it means to be a sojourner in this world or an exile. Right? It means that we're not living in our real home. It means we're living somewhere where there's just these little you know, cultural shock moments where we don't quite fit in. People don't quite get us. We don't quite get them. You know, it's like our Lego pieces just don't match sometimes. You know? uh, anyone ever here had like an exchange student? Anyone ever had let an exchange student stay with them? Remember when they did all that weird stuff? You were like, this is weird, you. And then they were like, you're weird? what it means. That's an example of what it means to be a resident. You live somewhere long-term, but you're somehow out of step with the culture and the world and the values around you. I mean, think about Peter's life. After, after Peter became a Christian, he was arrested multiple times in Jerusalem and beaten, <laughs> right? Acts 4, Acts 12. Uh, Peter even though he's in Jerusalem, doesn't quite fit in Jerusalem right now, right? And so Peter goes and he preaches the gospel and he goes to Rome. And does Peter fit in Rome? Is he just, is he Roman through and through? No, he ends up being martyred in Rome. There's something about being a Christian where no matter where you and I are, there's just something different about us, no matter where you are. We're always going to stick out. I think that's what Peter's trying to get us to see. Yes, we're scattered throughout this world. We're part of the dispersion. 
But there's always going to be something different about you, right? In the Old Testament, right, God's people were called to be holy, to be set apart. And in the same way, we today as God's people are called to be set apart, to be different. That may entail some social rejection. It may mean that there are TV shows you are never supposed to watch. It could mean that there are things on your computer you should never look at. It means that there may be jokes that are funny that you are not supposed to laugh at because they're more cruel than anything. There's, always, there's going to be this tension that you and I live in. Yes, we are beloved by God. We are his chosen. And yet there's something about us as Christ followers that is a little out of step with the people around us. I mean, for many of us, you know, when do we start? If, you're, if you were raised in the church, you realize this at some point when you're in like high school or maybe even middle school, right? That there's just something you maybe you don't even know what the, you can't even put your finger on it, right? But there's just something different about being marked as a Christian, right? It, it, we're, not, we're not killjoys. It's not that we just want these dour lifestyles, but there is something different. Peter knew what that meant, and so did his audience, and so do you and I. There is a distinction, right? Uh, we need to be careful not to try to be exactly like the world so that we can share the gospel to the world so they can remain just like the world, right? That doesn't make any sense. We should be distinct from the world right? Of course, he goes on and he says, these elect, these beloved people who somehow don't fit that live sort of like they're exiles, he says they're dispersed, right? They're scattered to all of these regions. And he, he gives us, you know, those five areas, Pontus, Galatians, such. Those are basic, he's basically looking at the five provinces of modern-day Turkey, right? He's looking at this huge area. It's modern-day Turkey, right? All of sort of northern Turkey. And it's a huge, huge area, which is why we know that Peter is not writing to just people that he knows. He's writing to all Christians as an apostle with authority. He's writing to all these Christians, and he's covering an area of like 300,000 square miles, right? It's this huge area. Uh, for a frame of reference, it's very similar to the footprint of uh, the Pacific Northwest, plus like the northern counties of California, right? So if you took Washington State, Oregon, Idaho, and then sort of the northern California states that call themselves Jefferson, right? Can you picture those? If you put that whole geographic region together, that's about the region that he's talking to. And it's not, a, it's not full of cities. It's not all these sort of, you know, uh, the New Testament writes a lot of letters to cities, you know, like there's a book to the Romans, there's a book to the Corinthians and Corinth. But First Peter is written to Christians sort of in this huge geographical region where there's a lot of small villages, there's a lot of rural communities. And he's saying, you are scattered there for a purpose. God has placed you there for a reason. And it's roughly the size of the Pacific Northwest. Right? So you can see why this is an applicable book for you and I to be studying. So let me just sort of finish up with this. Um, He's going to go through the Trinity, and you've got to grasp the Trinity to, to grasp this. And this is the first of a series on First Peter, so I'm giving you a lot of information. I know it feels like an information dump in a sense. Uh, but uh, you've got to get this next verse, because the whole passage doesn't make any sense unless you get it. Because uh, it's, so, it's just so beautiful the way Peter writes this. And uh, you, know, you know when you're on a roller coaster? Anyone ever been on a roller coaster? You know when you're on a roller coaster at Disneyland or whatever, and you're like, well, that was a fun little thing, and then that was fun... And they're like, well, that was a fun little, little up and down thing. And then at some point, there's like the big drop. And you're like, oh, were all those little ones like not that big of a deal? And then you go, and then you go down the really big drop. You know what I'm talking about? Has anyone ever been on a roller coaster like that? Good, because if not, y'all would just be looking at me, right? 
this passage works the same way, right? You're like, okay, I can, I can kind of get on board with this suffering thing. I can get on board with being, you know, chosen. But you have to get to the big, the big drop that goes and just blows your mind because that's what Peter does next, right? Look at verse 2. He says that you and I are chosen. That word chosen, when he says you are the elect exiles, that actually is explaining what verse 2 is about. He says you are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and the sprinkling of blood to Jesus Christ. Anyone catch what he just did? The thing you need to know is not only that you're not going to fit totally in this world, and not only that you are beloved and chosen by God, but primarily that you, your very life is wrapped up somehow, somehow beautifully in a way that you don't quite get because you're just flying down the roller coaster and it's so, you know, daggum beautiful and exciting. Somehow you, Christian, are wrapped up into the life of the Trinity. You have been foreknowledged. You've been foreknown. You have been chosen by God the Father himself. Before the foundation of the world, God the Father chose you And he has brought you about to be sanctified, to be made more holy, to be made more like Jesus by the powerful working of his Holy Spirit within you. The Holy Spirit has thrown you into the furnace of suffering, and you are a piece of gold that is going to come out more precious. And the Spirit is going to use suffering to be the thing that makes you into who you were always meant to be. This was God's uh, knowledgeable plan from all time, being at work in the Holy Spirit, embracing the suffering, because the goal of your life is to obey and follow Jesus. See, that's where Peter goes. He says, you are foreknown by God the Father. You are going to be made holy through suffering, through the working of the powerful Holy Spirit within you so that your goal in life is to obey and follow Jesus. He has sprinkled you clean with his precious blood. He was pierced for you. He has set you apart. You are the recipient of his covenant grace. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And he calls you to obey him in the midst of your suffering. Christian, that is who you are. You are wrapped up into the life of the triune God. And then he finishes his introduction and he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And may does not mean, I hope it does. Maybe it will. He's pronouncing a blessing over you. Because if you know who you are, you'll know the grace of God afresh this morning. And if you know the grace of God, that the Holy Spirit, God the Father and the Son are working in you to suffer for the sake of Jesus, How can you not have peace? Did you expect an easy life? Did you expect no suffering? Jesus suffered. You know, St. Augustine has said, God has many sons in this world, and he had one beloved son in particular, but he has never had a son who never suffered. Every son suffers. That's what Augustine says. Friends, that's an invitation to know who you are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the sanctification of your Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that we would embrace that suffering and so prove ourselves to be your followers. And Father, we thank you that you have known us from the foundation of the world. Father, would that humble us and make us praise you all the more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.